Hi everyone, welcome to Backstage with Blur the Border, a weekly podcast where we dive into the world of stylists. Vinita does it all. She's a fashion stylist, a creative director, and an editor. She's worked at one of the leading fashion magazines in India for eight years and has created some truly compelling visual narratives. Today, Vinita styles and art directs digital campaigns, commercial shoots, fashion weeks, and so much more. When she isn't busy being a master of the craft, she spends her time documenting Indian textiles. Her love for Indian textiles is palpable through her consistent commitment to writing about them and spotlighting our craftsmanship to a larger audience. We are so excited to host Vinita on the show. Vinita, welcome. Hi. Hi. I'm very excited to talk to you today. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. <laughs> okay, so Vinita, I want to talk to you about your origin story. Can you talk to me about your early days as a fashion stylist and how you got to where inducted into this world? Hmm, so I went to college to study mass media which is the most popular course at the time that I was uh, trying to get into uh, the arts. I always knew I wanted to work at magazines, so the path was pretty clear. I studied and majored in journalism, and I initially thought I would write more about fashion. But um, as I was inching towards my graduation and then I was looking for jobs, I think I was very interested in telling stories in a 360 degree sort of way, which was that I had full control over the narrative or how it came out. It's also the fallacy of youth mm-hmm. <laughs> where you think you have so much control but you know you uh, you start out so anyway um it was also recession the year that I graduated so magazines were sort of looking to find cheaper resources give them more work let you sort of go uh, you know take on more than you were probably even capable of mm-hmm. but it kind of worked out in my favor mm-hmm. so i had a job at a smaller magazine where it was called fashion coordinator and i was so young i was like probably 20 years or 21 years old and i could write i could style i could coordinate and call in stuff for shoots as well and that really just kind of gave me the opening to sort of uh, actually make a portfolio because i was very clear that i didn't want to study design uh, for in my youth in this you know young brain i still understood the concept of waste and i felt like i didn't want to create more physical things but just sort of create from what is already available mm-hmm. i didn't know at the time it's called styling and i sort of learned over the years because i didn't come from a fashion sort of uh, training where i worked with textiles or design or any of that so yeah anyway and then one job led to another proper fashion magazine job mm. where i spent 8 years all of my 20s wow <laughs> and now here i am yeah here you are you're a creative director and an artistic director i think a lot of people are very confused when they see a stylist take on those roles Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Of course, uh, I think creative director is a term that most people who sort of work in advertising agencies are sort of familiar with. But actually, if you work in magazines which are apart from what they look outside, they are smaller teams 
especially if you work in magazines that are not legacy titles yeah. you definitely take on more roles than you sort of signed up for just simply because there is no one available uh to do it and you know if you want to tell the story and if you want to get a shoot that month you want to build a portfolio you will very well do the job mm-hmm. so i think it's just if you think about it even you surbi you've worked at many magazines as well mm-hmm. when we style the concept always comes from us yes. um who the team should be is generally our idea unless there are advertising budgets to consider or relationships yeah. to consider we build the team it's our concept we know which designers to source from who we want to uh, kind of book to do the makeup so we've always done the job i think we're finally getting credit for it and we finally have a term for it and fashion is now adopting the title yeah. but truly we've always been stylist and creative director yes. can you tell me a little bit about how you found your voice and your visual language I think I only found it once I quit my full-time job. Once I went independent. Um it's been about 5 years. Uh-huh. I think it's also a little bit to do with age. When I quit I just turned 30. Yeah. And then there is the whole soul searching and uh, what am Maybe I doing with my life? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I started traveling a bit. I think when you're so burnt out with a full-time job there is very little time to think is there a connection to my work? You know, uh, I think I always like to read Dayanita Singh who's a prolific photographer from India and she says that it's only later on in your life when you open out your book does it start making sense what the story is mm. uh it's probably not so much when you first start working out and there are so many nuances as to why that doesn't happen but it's only later on uh you know you start opening your book and you see there's a connection from For example, I have been shooting with textiles since 2013 and it's only now in 2023 when I have some sort of voice about it in the editorial market which is not something that was there 10 years ago. Why do you think that is? I think everyone's now open to the story more yeah. than just the product. Of course the pandemic helped because the exports and the imports were shut and you know we had to buy local. There was so much realignment in how we shop why we are shopping how much we are shopping and fashion has always said something about you right mm-hmm. like if you wear denims then it says you're casual if you dress up then it says that you care about your opinion what others think of you so yeah so i think it's it's the story that people buy into when everybody now wants to know where has the fabric come from um are they supporting someone it's cerebral i think so it's definitely cerebral yeah Rita you've been traveling extensively and you've been on this path of discovery when it comes to Indian textiles. Can you tell us a little bit more about the trips that you've taken recently and what those experiences have been like? Oh so, so many. It's uh, yeah. uh I was just thinking I now only have uh, maybe some northeastern states remaining but I've pretty much covered a lot already. I've always been traveling for a long time even on my own but I think it really started out with shout out to Butul who used to work at a magazine at the time who was a f- uh, fashion features editor and she sort of sent me on a trip to Lucknow with Fab India mm. uh they had invited me to sort of come and see the crafts at the base level where the women sort of sit and embroider it by themselves what year was was this i 
think it was 2018 i think so, or 19 i can't remember yeah, yeah. um it was 5 years ago and i had been talking about the crafts on my instagram in any case mm-hmm. which is perhaps you know why fab india also kind of uh, knew that i was working on this on my own um so they took a bunch of us to see where they embroider there because they have a chicken curry collection that comes out every year yeah. so for them it's a big sector and they wanted us to come see uh, and rip, see where the crafts really is uh, originating the story behind it how do they translate it for their audience which may or may not want to you know spend mm-hmm. that much on the craft so you know it and that's the first time i realized that these stories that i've been sharing on my instagram or on my social media actually has space in on the pages of a magazine because when i was working there the, we weren't talking about indian crafts in this way while we were always using indian designers i don't remember us using uh, or doing stories that were craft based it was always craft with the context of a designer yeah yeah but not pure craft stories for the sake of craft or oh, but even with designers i don't ever remember crediting a jacket with saying zardozi embroidered jacket it would always be black jacket or power shoulder jacket you know mm, that right like when we write yeah. credits for magazines yeah, yeah. and now it's all like banarsi sari but first it would be golden bordered or like yeah. red colored you know it was color based yeah. we didn't really ever give credit to what it was but now you know we actually even give credit to the maker so we you very often see in my stories the artisan is named as well and the artisan sort of finds space right next to the designers mm-hmm. and that's been lovely to be able to do can you tell me a little bit more about the trip that you took for the G20 summit and the exhibits that they had based on craft so originally we wanted to see um ashish the architect and the artist his works on the stumps which is the pillars that we find in some of the oldest uh, temples and houses in our country and these were modern iterations of that i can't wait to see this and um yeah so they'll i mean hopefully it'll be a traveling show but you are it's open to public so i urge a lot more people to go to orissa to see it orissa is such a beautiful state um it is it's where our current president comes from as well so that's nice to have that context to go and uh see some of the sarees she wears all the time that craft museum that scale is just stellar it's not something i've seen somewhere else and the fact that it's not in a metro city i think that's what some of these crafts exhibits are now trying to do they're trying to invite people to come see what's happening in the rest of the country apart from bombay delhi bangalore yeah. chennai you know and there's so much and if i were not traveling for these things i don't know how i would have been able to find all this so it, it's nice to also visit any state with this context uh, it's a lot of fun um, and if you find a way to make it more contemporary then like for example when i went to the museum i saw a saree that vidya balan had worn and this is not something if i wasn't following fashion i would just be like oh this is a cute saree with math equation on it <laughs> but but actually it's a saree that vidya balan wore yeah. and it's nice to connect it back to fashion and that's a really beautiful thing about india like our fashion is interconnected to its textiles so that story is actually one and the same it's not too different so it's been really easy to actually connect what i do which is primarily fashion with textiles because the the equation is symbiotic it's one and the same yeah and have you seen a clear influence on how you style now versus 
five years ago. Absolutely. And the trips have helped that. Yeah. Like, had I not taken these trips to see how things are made, I think it um, gives me context of why it's special. Like, for example, when I was in a magazine, Apero used to send us clothes in fabric cloths. Or I remember when Swati Kalsi once sent me a jacket for a shoot, um, I had to understand why it was museum quality and I could not store it with the rest of the clothes and why it was that expensive. I think as stylists, we're so busy. Uh, sometimes the clothes on our rack are all piled as one because they're just looks for somebody or a shoot or whatever. But once you start traveling and you're seeing how these are made, uh, why they are made, who's making them, it just, I think puts so much reverence into your work it gives you this reverence for which country we belong to and you know no other country in the world has our craft legacy uh, if you probably went to japan and tried to do a batik you'd probably like have to sell a limb or something you know yeah uh, you but in india you just call somebody and now they're all on instagram right and you call them and say i want a sample for something and uh, you'll get it and i think just having discovered what we have here rediscovered what mm -hmm. we have here it, it's changed everything about how i do anything at all how i write how i style how i creatively direct it's all changed no, and there is a very clear evolution in the way that you put out your work as well. What do you hope people take away from the exposure you're giving to Indian craft and textile? Oh, I think my biggest pet peeve is like people should stop saying that they are supporting the artisans. Yeah. There's this whole uh, <laughs> language, support the artisans by buying from them. I'm like, mm, unless you're one of the first families of India, uh, you're not supporting anyone. You're simply buying into what they are selling mm -hmm. and you're lucky enough to have it. We're not supporting anybody. But I hope that people, you know, uh, stop looking at it as like a charity or as something you buy one thing. It's, I think, handloom is quite sexy. It can be. Mm -hmm. And that's why the designer intervention is needed. Yeah. Uh, and I'm so glad so many designers are now talking about their processes. Uh, I must admit and say that designers have always worked with them. We just didn't know about it. Yeah. The consumer awareness has grown yes and it just needs to be on that trajectory yeah correct like yeah. we just didn't know about it like you know like I also only learned about all of this now hmm yeah that's true So we're going to move on into the next segment of our podcast and this is a little bit of an industry deep dive I wanted to talk to you specifically about the independent creators. We're constantly pitching ideas to different brands or in different realms of the industry. How are these ideas important? Can you talk to me a little bit more about that? You know, I think uh, as freelancers, as independent creators, our ideas are our currency. Mm -hmm. Apart from the fee that we get. I mean, we all know that the market is competitive, yeah. right? There's so many of us now and so many of us have gone independent since the death of magazines, magazines. <laughs> but uh, you know so it's so sad though it is sad so many of us are in the market so many of our references are the same so many of our uh, you know starting points are the same so what gets you the job is mm -hmm. your idea like if it's better than all the other ones um, if you're able to execute it how are you able to stand out in the market from the other freelancers or the other creators that you know it's the it's the first thing that 
puts your foot into the door. Yeah. I mean, after that, it's how well you do a job. But if you didn't have the idea, so I think it's really problematic. You know, like I've seen that so many times. I'll just say something random on my Instagram story, and I like the next third day, like you know, there's a whole story on it by another writer, or I'll see that I've sent something to a brand or a magazine. And it probably didn't get picked up, but somebody else has done it. And I know that you also have gone through it, and so have a lot of other mm-hmm. stylists or writers. Yeah. Um. And we can be philosophical about it and say that you know you can copy me, but you can never have my vision. But you know, it it bothers you. It for sure bothers you, but also you know I feel like this industry is not regulated. Mm. In more regulated industries, there are IP laws. Correct. Right. Um. You and I were talking about this off record, and you basically opened my eyes to like to charging pitching fees. Yes. To people. <laughs> yes. Talk to me a, a oh, little bit about I that. I mean, it's been a lesson. I think that um, what happens is that. And this is something I didn't know either. This is something my advertising friends have told me about. Oh my God, that uh, that you know sometimes when they invite agencies to come and pitch, they charge them like fees. Yeah. Not not all, but some do. Um, yeah. And also, I think with some senior uh, creatives, I do know that even to just send in their ideas deck, there is a small amount. I don't think it's very large, no. but there is a small fee attached to it yeah. because, you know, you never know unless we're now signing NDAs with everyone and everything, mm-hmm. which is also an expensive affair. It is. It's very expensive. Exactly. But I think it's time that we do take this seriously. I think that, you know, when we sit together and for some of us, when ideas are just like flowing, we just say whatever we want in front of whomever without realizing that someone's always making notes. Yeah. (laughs) And uh, I think it's important to maybe get a little bit more organized about this. So, you know, I, I think that once you reach a certain level or if it's a brand you have not approached, I think it's fair enough to say I'm going to be charging a fee to send you my ideas, which can be waived off if if I do go ahead on this project with you. If You, you integrate want to. that. Yeah, you integrate that. But if they don't go ahead with you for whatever reason, mm-hmm. then you at least, ha- you know, you've got your time's worth. Because, you know, I mean, when we make our decks, it's not a one hour job. So, you know, that Picasso story, right? Like a woman approaches Picasso um, in a restaurant and says, can you do something for me on a tissue and I'll be happy to pay whatever you want. And then he does it in 30 seconds and he says, uh, I want $10,000 for it. And she's like, "Mm, you made this in like 30 seconds. And he's like, no, actually, it took me 40 years to make this in 30 seconds. And not that I'm comparing us to Picasso or anything in the same zip code but it's the same with all artists like in my case I started 15 years ago so what you're really charging someone is your expertise and is is your problem solving capacity because when you go on set everything that can go wrong does go wrong 100% all the time <laughs> at all times yeah uh, and you know it's it's my experience of 15 years that helps me pro- like troubleshoot and problem solve and uh, so I'm really charging for my experience and my time and not just that one day of shoot that you've booked me for. Exactly. So I feel like there needs to be some respect to what we bring. So I also want to talk to you about how, you know, the general population and sometimes creators in the industry included have the mindset where we're looking to the West for inspiration. But like you said, India has a rich history of craftsmanship and textiles and things are changing in this area now. What more do you think needs to happen for the industry to push 
the craftsmanship and textile conversation forward i think that the industry right now is still treating it as if it's a trend mm mm-hmm. but i've always said that it's a symbiotic relationship we wouldn't be able to run our industry without our textile sector or the fabrics it provides us and the rest of the world i think we've seen that with dior right now and yeah. you know like i think it's fa- by the way the newest beyonce look that she wore on her renaissance tour that was also embroidered in india but also it's not the first time she's worn things that have been embroidered here Absolutely she's been not. doing that over the course of her career for many years yeah and not just her she probably doesn't know about it yeah. uh yes. and <laughs> and not just her i mean it's pretty much everyone like it's impossible like for example designers like driesman noten openly credit us the house of dior always has mm-hmm. but you know um interestingly enough like when we used to shop in sarojini nagar or at fashion streets i have seen so many brands uh their samples being sold off or like um you know probably like uh like a reject pile or something finds its way to these yeah. markets not as much anymore because of the regulation yeah but when when we just started out like we'd find like for example i once found a yogi piece at sarojini nagar yeah and that's something like you'll n- never ever see i mean I can't remember the last time i also went there but you know like it's it was so interesting to see that and like i remember once i got a courier um for a shoot from an international brand and i could see on the courier slip where i was signing off how many embroidery ateliers exist here and the brands next to it that was sending the couriers to them so i think that it's always existed we're just coming to know now and this should continue mm. um we should perhaps uh, talk more openly about it and it's on us as journalists as stylists to credit it on our social media as well who's made it maybe the ateliers as well i think not just credit but i think context is also so much more important you know um for example there's celebrities walking the the can red carpet correct and it's not just the designer that's made their outfit you know for mm. somebody to have context on an international level correct about what that piece is what type of embroidery it is what is it native to mm. how many millennia or centuries does it go back to yeah, you know like just true. to have that kind of context and education yeah is so important i mean i think that comes down to probably then the stylist to you know let the um, actors know what they're wearing and yeah. you know uh, uh, sort of talk about it when when we get credit or maybe like i said you know i think instagram is such a good way to sort of uh, cre- and it's a lot of people are coming and reading there so i think it's nice to probably mention there who made it mm-hmm. um, how long it took yeah all of those things yeah the article that you wrote about the ms blue sari is so interesting Can you tell me a little bit more about this little nugget of history? <laughs> We think there were only the creative industries fighting for credit, but you'll be surprised um, how many even textile-based brands are fighting on credits or you know saying we started it. That's the thing. We have a lack of documentation. of pieces made in our country. Yeah. I think some of the private museums are now beginning to do it. I I've heard that a lot of senior designers are now archiving their collections. But I think with MS Blue um it's the power of celebrity like we still call it the uh the Mumtaz sari because of the three drapes that she did. So it 
it's a nice you know peacock sort of blue that she came to wear a lot i think she probably found it lucky or i don't know what it was but she wore it a lot on all her events and all her photos and the people who made it for her started calling it the ms blue sari they started selling it like that uh, but from what i know like a couple of brands take credit for it it's not just one and who knows <laughs> how many others how many others who knows but uh, it, it, that's the power of celebrity they can make anything famous like for example uh, the choli blouse the sexy blouse i think i would credit it properly to manish malhotra like you know he got it into mainstream bollywood and yeah. and all our desi girls have sort of he is definitely one of the originals isn't he absolutely and i think uh, what's interesting is that he's also a stylist he is Yeah, exactly. And you know there's so many times now we when we look to the west we're seeing people like Tom Ford work in movies and you yeah. know craft their costume. Correct. But like it's been going on forever over here. Yeah, but that's the thing the stylist didn't exist in the context of a movie. It's always been the costume design. Yeah. But now it's blurring the borders. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice little segue into our next segment. uh which is all about homegrown brands i want to talk to you about all of the brands in these particular categories mm. especially because of all of this knowledge that you have about craft and textiles it's going to be a rapid fire um so we have to begin with textiles which are some of your favorite homegrown labels that focus on indian textiles in a modern way i wouldn't know where to begin there are so many but um i would say i love what gaurav jaikupta is doing with akaro mm. he makes this extremely original metal blend sari which is malleable but at the same time uh yeah. looks like metal wires literally yeah I like Studio Medium. What she's doing, she calls she makes the hand she makes the hands free sari. I know it's beautiful. It's beautiful, and her play on bandhani and ba- and of course you know batik and I want to own one of her pieces. It is my thing. She's really she, she's so lovely. I mean, who would have thought of hands free sari? You know, um, I like only a woman. Only a woman. Yeah, and you know I always say whatever men can do, women can do better. And in a sari. Yep. Hundred <laughs> percent, and uh, I like what Roka, that's Sriji Jivan from Kerala, is doing with the kasavu. I'd never seen a black kasavu before. He sort of made it, and it, they're so well priced. They're so easy. Um, our weather is close to the south, so you know what I mean. In Bombay, you want something that's lightweight and that's cotton. I can go on and on about raw mango. Sanjay has done a lot for the sari. I mean, mushroom wasn't even considered a textile for saris until he did that collection. Yeah. But my favorite from him is again the suti. It's the softest cotton I've ever sort of experienced. So yeah, that, I mean, I'm just beginning. I love what Tilfi is doing in Banaras. Uh, it's just uh, endless. There's just endless inspiration. There is also this sort of like notion that Indian. Textile is only good for like traditional silhouettes. Yeah, talk to me about your ready-to-wear silhouettes. Um, actually, uh, I really like Savio John from Goa. Um, it's so been good. A, yeah, it's been a while since we've seen him at a fashion week, but I I just visited his studio in Goa, and um, it's so interesting that he's working with some locally made fabrics in mm. in silhouettes that are so sexy, so complicated to understand, uh, and so beautiful to wear. Um, I hope he comes back. 
you know in a big way i really would like to see more people wearing him um i've always said i love what jodi does they work with block prints and i don't think anybody's been able to make block printing um so contemporary so sexy i love what they do with their silhouettes uh you'll never think that it's a craft based brand simply mm-hmm. because and of course uh, gauri and karuna are stylists so with an editorial background yes <laughs> I feel like we must claim them as our own. Yes, yes, yes. So it makes sense why yeah. it looks the way it does. Yeah. Um I absolutely love what Himanshu is doing with 1111. Um he's given Bandhani a completely new flavor. There is Yam who mm. also works with block print and it's so cute and it's so wearable and it's accessible. The fabrics are really nice. And in Kamit Hansraj, I think there's so much value in starting a brand once you've already worked in the industry for a while. which is what Amit did with Inka he's been around for a long time almost two decades working with other brands uh consulting with other designers and i think what he's done with Inka is so original the fabrics are like butter they work in all seasons they can be worn with jeans but then they can be worn as sexy kaftans and i i think mm. that he's really going to change an aesthetic and i i love that i love that for us yeah what are your favorite jewelry brands oh I'm an Amrapali girl. Um I love Shop Loon as well. Loon is what it is. Otherwise uh I still think that a nice way to shop is probably to go into our markets. There's a lot that is there. Yeah. That's true. I think what happens is that you know because our weather is such that we lose the sheen on a lot of our pieces. Mhm. and that's something i don't think a lot of brands have been able to crack what are your favorite shoe brands i don't think india has cracked that i don't think we have it this has been a very recurring response to yes, this question yes we don't have one mm, yeah. there's nothing i think but a good thing to do is to go to dharavi mm. uh, and uh, i do that for some of my commercial shoots is that you can actually get a boot made you can get a mule made i mean basically that's what i'm actually stressing on like i think we're sitting on a gold mine here even in main cities you can get them done i think agra is a great market to buy local shoes cuz they manufacture there for a lot of uh, international brands mm-hmm. so there is that okay i actually want to say that i do like an indian brand and that's soul sisters oh yeah yeah she makes kolapuris i'm wearing them right now but you know you think why should i buy kolapuri at that premium price when it's available on all street stores but it's how she cuts it it's the material and uh it's the colors Yeah. And I so that's the brand from India I do like. Okay. How about beauty? I know mm, you're into that. I'm into beauty. I again think that hair care no one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But if I had to say I love 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 Kama Ayurveda. I'm a fan. I've bought a lot. It's effective. And I think I'm more into skin care. Uh, from Indian brands rather than beauty, but I also really like this uh, brand called Daughter Earth. They have these lovely pigment pots. Yeah, uh, so cute, and they stay forever. They smell great. Yeah, that, that one. Yeah, nice. Okay, what excites you the most about the future of homegrown brands? You know, I think that when we think about Indian artisanal or uh, karigars, or it's always in the prospect of couture, but the capacity is larger than that the possibility is larger than couture like for example we could have an indian muji yeah where is that we have all the fabrics for it we do maybe i'll begin one but uh, where's the indian muji or where's uh, where's an indian high street store that's made the rounds in the world 
we can have that. We have the production capacity. We have the textile capacity. Yeah, so I think I'm really look. I'm excited to see us go mainstream mm-hmm. and m- not just focus so much on embroidery and couture, but also on what we can offer that is larger than that in a large scale. That's something I'm very excited to see happen for us. Right. That would actually be really interesting. Yeah. We don't have a high street store. We don't have an Indian high. Like, like I, we do have the label Ritu Kumar's and, you know, and by Anita Dongre. Yes. But I feel like the younger generation doesn't find it very relatable. They don't. And I mean, I think that in some ways they still continue to res- aspire to the Zara's and H&M's. Yeah. And I think that they are still, a lot of them are still craft focused, although some of those are prints and not actual uh, crafts. But, and that's a debate for another time. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think we have that. So it, it would be nice to kind of see, like, for example, I love what Uniqlo does. It can't be categorized as high street because of the fabrics that they sort of use. Mm. It's not necessarily sustainable all the time, yeah. but it's how much they create, which is just enough. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's what they do with their uh, their silhouettes, with their brands. I would love to see what India can do and take to the world in that capacity. Who do you think would be able to do that best from our current set? Because I know there's so many. I really hope it's somebody young and upcoming because uh, it it needs a vision that comes from uh, optimism. It needs a little delirious optimism. It really does, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, yeah, I think that it it needs a little bit of uh, reckless abandon to say it can happen. Mm. So maybe somebody young and upcoming. Yeah. So, you know, there is also the problem of price points, how very few Indian designers have been able to capture an audience at a very like affordable rate but a lot of the times when you go to buy something from you know niche Indian designers things are quite aspirationally priced yes <laughs> I think that's that's a problem of scale mm. uh, because I mean it is handwork it does go at a slower level yeah uh, but I think Fab India has proven very well that scale can be achieved like if you go to Sanganair where they do the block printing for international brands, yeah. uh, they produce like 50,000 pieces in cotton, hand block printed yeah. a week. That's insane scale. And uh, I think that India doesn't have an issue of scale. It can scale up if it wants to. The question is, but it's handwork. So it's never going to follow a template and not every piece is going to look like the other. And when it comes to quality control, they may not always pass in, so to say, traditional terms. Yeah. But if anybody who understands what this work is, yes. will know that's the beauty of it. Exactly. That each piece is so unique. Yeah. We're going to move on into the final segment of our podcast, which is an EMA and includes questions from the Blur the Water team. Okay, so the first question is, as a creative director, how do you stay inspired? What are your go-to sources of inspiration? Oh, I wish I could say that I don't live on the internet Mm. and that I don't have those really uh, embarrassing timeline hours (laughs) on my my phone. Uh, I definitely live on the internet, but I would say that have friend circles outside of the job. I find a lot of my references from old movies, books, old pictures from my family and 
that's a big one for me as well. Yeah. There's so much I and I think that when I first started traveling for textiles it was just to I was just so burnt out. I was just so saturated of, you know, referring to magazines. I think it started out to just get inspired at base level. Mm. So I think travel is a big one for me. There's always ideas coming to my head when I'm uh on the, on the flight. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so I like to travel alone. That's one of the reasons I do that. Other people outside of the fashion industry on Instagram, like food is a big one for me. Mm. Uh it's huge. I'm hugely interested in it. Also having a huge India moment by the way. And you know, I just I love to see indigenous tribal fashion, their textiles. There's always something from that, especially for me because my stories are so uh Indian focused. Yeah. So it's it's a huge point of inspiration for me. The next question is what are your thoughts on the growing influence of social media in the fashion industry and how does it impact your work as a creator? <laughs> uh oh god we love to hate Instagram and uh where would we without it? It's made fashion so democratic. Yeah. We're our own publishers, but at the same time it's just uh we don't know the impact of it really. Like we haven't studied it for as long as we've studied some of the other vices yeah. so we don't know in 30 40 years what is going to do to our brain to have this much information coming to us at all time so it's, it's definitely overwhelming and i think in the last 10 years we've also seen the effect that overconsumption has had yes and not just overconsumption of like data media etc but just it's had a direct impact on how we're consuming products around us i think all of us are always also talking about uh how many of us are dealing with anxiety and uh i think a lot of it does come from the amount of screen time i mean our, our work is online right like our yeah. campaigns are for digital yeah. so how could we not be online it's a necessary evil it is a necessary evil but i don't know how to evaluate my work and separate it from that medium anymore and it's so difficult because when i started out when i was studying fashion it wasn't something that existed or something that i needed to like necessarily pay too much attention to but now here we are and i think it's changed a lot right so i think for me also it's because i'm interested in textiles there are opportunities to sort of um take it on ground where you know you uh, lead tours or you basically organize curated tours of uh, uh-huh. museums and i think going forward and something i have been doing is spending inspiration time outside of my phone screen because i need it uh and I find that that's a good way to sort of do the work that needs to be done online and then also find ways to fulfill yourself outside yeah. that's uh, you know time with friends time on holidays yeah. uh, not discussing work and also finding new ways to be inspired by work which is not on the screen like i said museums are big for me yeah and india now has so many museums coming up mm-hmm. there's kenma Theorisha one I just went to and of course we have our own NMACC in Bombay. It's a long time coming. Long time coming. That's a big one actually. I'm really excited about it. So I think that we finally actually have these opportunities to go back on ground and get inspired by actual people watching see the artwork. Yeah. We've never had so much access before. Yeah. So I think we're good. Thank you for that. Thank that was you. very important. And that's a wrap on our conversation, Vinita. Thank you so much. Thank you, Surbi. See you uh, at some shoot. Yeah, or an event. Or an event. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
And that was our conversation with Vinita. I personally learned so much from that chat and I hope you've enjoyed that as well and had a lot of takeaways like I did. If you enjoyed this episode, follow us on your favorite streaming platform. We'll be back next week. Until then, I'm your host, Sirbhi Shukla.